forever. Dog. They write, they talk, and talk about what they write. Tune in tonight, or whenever the time is right. It's the Writers Panel with Ben Blacker, and it's starting now. Oh yeah! Before we get to today's episode, I have an exciting chat with the writer and director of Beckett, which is out right now on Netflix. Everyone should go watch it. Um, pause this right now. Go watch it because we're going to get into it. Um, and I really love the movie, so I'm excited to talk to these guys. I'm going to have you introduce yourselves on the microphones so the listener knows what you sound like. And Kevin, let's start with you, please. This is uh, Kevin A. Rice, writer on Beckett. Thank you. And I'm Ferdinando Cito Filomarino, director of Beckett. Um, congrats on the movie, guys. It's really fun and it's really exciting and it has something to say about the world which is nice for uh, a thriller um let's just talk about how it started to come together i'm sure you've told the story a million times so feel free to give me the abridged version but how did this movie take shape birdie i think it started with a shrimp salad is that where uh, you and i came <laughs> together yeah well i i um I always loved this uh, this genre, or let's say this subgenre sub of like the manhunt thriller with a political background, very much. Uh, whether it was in literature in the first half of the 20th century or in movies more in the second half of the 20th century, thinking of the 70s in particular. Uh, and I kind of always knew I wanted to make something along those lines. And, uh, you know, and then the idea was, okay, but how do we, how do I, find an angle. Uh, what couldn't be the priorities of this one? What can be fresh about it? And uh, uh, the angle was character and uh, tone. You know, what if there inside of this thriller is a dramatic character who's not supposed to be in a thriller? And therefore that informed automatically the tone had to be somewhat grounded. And on those premises, I started sort of throwing together a kind of story. And I wanted to collaborate with an American writer because, you know, the, obviously the, this genre is very much uh, explored in American, the, the, in American cinema, it's kind of the archetype, you know, an American in a foreign place, figuring things out. Uh, so I wanted to play on that and then find our angle. And I like the idea with my background, I'm Italian, I'm a European filmmaker, to work with an American writer with his background and, um, you know, uh, I, I, through, you know, my producers, uh, I came across Kevin's material and he wrote something that I read, which was a different genre, but I remember reading, uh, even though that was sci-fi actually, some very tangible characters who felt real, even though sci-fi stuff was happening. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. So. Uh, and, and he responded to whatever I wrote uh, at that time, which was, of course, very uh, early on. Mm -hmm. And so based on this mutual sort of uh, reaction, we met in front of a shrimp salad in Los Angeles. It all comes and started back. talking about all the things that the, the movie could be. And then, you know, it was the beginning of a beautiful friendship. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Kevin, what were you doing up until now? Um, am I right that this is your first produced credit? First produced credit, yeah. So in that, and Ferdy, the lunch Ferdy mentioned was sort of at the very beginning of my like, you know, so I think I was still working at, so I'll just give you a quick background, but yeah, I worked at, uh, I, went, I came into LA uh, to go to AFI, the Film Institute for the Writing Program. 
subsequently, I was just working at UCLA and UCLA Santa Monica, the doctor's office, and I would write in the cafeteria after I, I left left work to avoid traffic because I lived on the, on the east side. And uh, so from that, I, I'd written the pilot in that cafeteria that Ferdy read that like I, I think at that point um, had, I think had been sold at that point. Um, so when in development kind of just didn't go any further than that. Um, but yeah, and then we, so I was with WME at the time and they, they just, they put us together and we had this lunch and we were very clicked. And um, so it, yeah, that, you know, I think that was, I think that was about seven years ago, I think, Ferdy, something like that. Wow. Um, yeah. So it's, and, you know, and from my end, it was like the opportunity to work on a movie like this, because to Ferdy's point, there are like, so this archetype of American storytelling in cinema, but at the time it was for a writer on spec was a little bit kind of a hard thing, I think, to get would be a hard thing a little bit to get going in, in terms of like, you know, something that's very character based and very, and very sort of like um, tone and character based. So he, you know, he mentioned the third man and I was like, okay, I'm listening. And, you know, and then we just started talking about all these movies we loved and, and in, in, you know, that tone, that genre. And it, yeah, it just grew out of that. And it, and um, you know, I, I've, you know, and I, all the thanks in the world to Ferdy for bringing me to this point and bringing me along to this point. So it was, yeah, it's been kind of an amazing journey. Let's talk about those, um, conversations you had about tone. I mean, I think what I really loved about this movie is um, that it captures that tone of like Three Days of the Condor or Parallax View without feeling like a throwback. It still feels very contemporary. Um, So tell me about the conversations that you guys had in that area and sort of nailing that down on the page. Do you want to take it for it? Go ahead. Uh, uh, yeah, I think it, I think it was it was a lot of references, right? So we, in terms of uh, the starting point, was references, right? I actually have a, a notepad here that's filled with all like eighteen that's movies that we, that we, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's notes. I got notes. Um, so you know, we started with references, right? And like what works, what we think doesn't work, what we like, what we don't like, and and you know, and then and then the, the tone. I, I generally, in terms of general tone, I think you know, Freddie can speak to this in sort of a more macro sense. I can speak to it on the page, but it was it was a constant sort of you know, um, give and take, right? It's a constant sort of struggle to be like, all right, what's outside of the parameters we've set for ourselves? What's okay to go outside of what's not? And what do we, what do we want to represent? And what do we decided? And, you know, for an ex- example, like one thing to your point about it feeling contemporary, I think one thing was very important to us throughout the process was keeping it uh, grounded, his experience grounded, you know? So he's a person, he's a person, right? He's a person that needs to eat, that needs to use the bathroom, that needs to, that's scared, that is, you know, like, so it was, it was, um, that was the thing we, we like, we go back to that sort of bell we kept ringing um, throughout. Um, so yeah, in sort of sim- simplistic ways, it was, it was references and then out of that to make it contemporary was like this character, what is this character experiencing? What is, what does he need and want at moment to moment? So I think kept, kept us grounded in that sense. And then, uh, Ferdy, as the director, once you sort of have a working script, how do you start to, again, keep that tone, keep those parameters? Um, Well, it's not any different. I mean, uh, to me, the tone uh, started before the script existed. Um, so, uh, actually before the story existed, (laughs) you know, like I said earlier, uh, that, that was going to be the angle was going to be, okay, we have this dramatic character who's in the wrong movie, essentially. And that informed consequently that the tone would have to be grounded and that everything that happened to him that was kind of genre-y would, would go, would be filtered by this prism of his, uh, a drama and the crisis that he's going through and b uh 
essentially uh, uh, inability to deal with these situations to begin with. So uh, that informed story-making decisions. So, and again, through various forms of inspiration and, and, uh, and uh, you know, conversation. So by the time we got to having a working script, uh, I was already, I already had, you know, tons of material that I could reference or think about to uh, all the sort of Frankenstein pieces uh, together that would make what is the ingredients for this specific tone that we wanted. Uh, I'm so, a very you know, from then on, it, it just became, uh, you know, okay, apply that to uh, finding locations, apply that to uh, finding actors. But, you know, the tone existed first. As I say, I have a very full Dropbox folder, shared Dropbox folder of references, <laughs> whether it be photos or books or articles or yeah. <laughs> I bet. Um, and and again, like the the it feels so lived in, and I think that's really part of its appeal. Um, and I think part a big part of why it works. Like you guys clearly lived with this character in this world as you were creating the story around him. Um, I did want to ask the the. Biggest question I had in watching it is why Greece? Um, I'd never seen a film like this that takes place in Greece, but it felt like absolutely the right decision. Well, I mean, definitely that feeling that you had is what we were going for. Uh, obviously, these types of films travel around the world a lot, and that's part of the fun, you know, exploring places you don't know, also in ways that you wouldn't, even if you were to visit them. Uh, and so, uh, it wasn't always Greece, by the way, but then, but then what Greece had to offer was twofold, uh, both the political and social context that we needed for story for, you know, to do our, what's going, what goes on in the background of the story and ends up, you know, eventually more in the foreground towards the end of the film. Uh, we needed a country going through a sort of a turmoil of sorts. Uh, and this, this, idea of activism, of regular citizens needing to engage in action, which was both useful for the story, but also to inspire our character in the way that we built him. And the other aspect to it was the more sort of visual, uh, it, um, sort of uh, uh, imagination aspect of it, which was, okay, wh why don't we go to Greece, but like avoid islands, you know, avoid the golden summer and the tourists ideal let's go in mainland greece and and i drove around all of greece and, and found these amazing uh places and you know and after that we actually changed the script depending on some locations we we, we morphed scenes we but we we uh how do you say backward engineered uh some scenes to work for some of the locations that i found uh so that we could have uh also a variety of landscapes, which would inform the amount of travel that is going on in the story. It's smart. It makes sense. And again, it makes it feel like very panoramic, but also very claustrophobic, you know, which which I think is part and parcel to these movies uh, and works really well. Um, in the script phase, uh, in the storytelling phase, what were some of the challenges? I think, um... You know, the, to go back to references for a second, it's like you're stepping into a genre that's like, you know, sort of well trodden, you know, like, well, you know, it's, it's we, we've we've gone over this a lot. So it's like it's like not 
it's presenting it in a way that's not like, yeah, yeah I've seen this, you know what I mean? I've, I've, I've seen, you know, I've seen this, this movie before, this scene before. So I think the sort of like Ferdy's point about the originality being the character and then having to expand that to like, okay, but we, you know, we're entertaining people and we're engaging people and we're you know, exciting them and, and scaring them. So it's like, how do we, how do we make sure those, those interesting elements that we find that we, you know, we've studied this character, we've lived with him, we've, you know, like we've, sort of studying these references how do we make sure that's clear like how do we make sure that's engaging and entertaining and and, and you know we, we we definitely had points i remember w- there was uh one point we were working on the script together and we were kind of pacing around trying to figure something out and it was like have we been here too long it was like i think we've been here too long and it was like and we like removed a scene you know and it's like just to keep the pacing up and it's like you're you're um yeah i, th- I think the sort of pacing of it where to where to um sort of uh make that make those decisions in terms of like where to turn the story and like where to you know it, it, um to keep to keep you moving forward. And, you know, and the, the other thing too, is there's, there's just practical um, situations with that where you're kind of like, all right, we need to get him from A to B. How do we do that? How do we do that? How do we do it in an engaging way? How do we get, how do we get him? To, you know, he wants to get to Athens, right? It's like, how do we get there? How do we make that engaging? How do we make that interesting? You know what I mean? So, and then all that, you said, that's the practical stuff, the puzzle that I, I like figuring out. And then it's like, all right, are we servicing what we're saying about the situation and the character into those two things, and like the the nice Freddie kind of touched on before that nice juxtaposition of a character who sort of beckoned, who sort of lets life happen to him, and uh, put against activists who are taking charge of life, and then how that affects him, and you know where that goes. Um, so yeah, it, it, like I think like a lot, you know, like a lot of scripts, it ends up being that balance, right? Of of you know, like you've decided to touch on these these themes, you decided to put them in this situation, now make all that work together. Yeah, so trial and error. Yeah, yeah, it was a lot of it was a lot of pacing. It was a lot of pacing around, a lot of Skype calls, a lot of you know, so a lot of rewrites. Do you, do you have to worry? Uh, part of what I really like about this movie is the simplicity of the plot. It's not a convoluted plot for having a lot of ideas in it and a lot of great character stuff in it. Um, but ultimately, like the plot is pretty straightforward. And do, do, mm-hmm. was that something you had to worry about? Either overcomplicating it or undercomplicating it. Um, I'll let Freddie speak this a little bit, but I, I would just say that, um, yeah, I, yes, I think is a short answer, and and then, but I, I think, um, you know, uh, yeah, I, 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 again, it was just sort of a balance, right? It was kind of like I, I, we've gone too far, you know. We we so we we sort of the the stuff in the background. Uh, we went through multiple iterations of versions of it i think some were too complicated some were too simplistic um but from my end from a storytelling standpoint i love like a, a really simple setup where it's like all right you know they this guy escaped from prison go and that's not the setup of our movie but just as an example um you know like i i love a i love a really simple setup for me so that that to me is a nice challenge it's a fun challenge and beyond that it became like yeah not sort of going too far but so i'll, I'll let Freddie respond to that well i first of all I'm, I'm glad you say that because in fact probably uh the opposite was more true in the development and uh, preparation of the movie. The notes we were getting were more like, ah, this is too complicated. So I'm glad you feel the opposite way <laughs> because it took some attention. Uh, but uh, I think the reason that feeling emerges and I'm, I'm glad it did to you is again, our perspective is uh, I actually think it is a little complicated eventually, if you want to understand all the things that happen. But the most important thing is not necessarily that. The most important thing is experiencing them the way Beckett does. And he is clueless, just 
the same amount that we are, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, and we progress and he learns little pieces as we learn them. There is never, we never disconnect from him. And I think uh, that sort of step-by-step uh, uh, process, it, it gives you that feeling and that relatability, not just because it's piece by piece. Also, sometimes maybe the pieces are not what you think they are, but it's simply because you also see it on his face. You're like, oh, yeah, I, I feel the same way, man. You know, uh, you're, he's flabbergasted. I am too. Like, what, what is going on? You know? Yeah. So that absolutely. relatability, I think, contributed to uh, surfing the complications of the plot. Yeah. And I think it's something, you know, we don't get that a lot in contemporary movies, right? Like it's it's Jimmy Stewart and the man who knew too much. Right. Um, but but today we have Tom Cruise, right? It's all Mission Impossible. Right. That guy has all the answers. He he can right. do anything. And it was so it's so much fun watching this guy figure it out and feel pain and have the this huge obstacle in the middle of the movie be how am I going to get to Athens? <laughs> like, I love that that becomes a huge plot point. Um, yeah, go ahead. I, I, no, I was just gonna say, I think that that was a, that was a um, sort of a, a thing we were, a, a target we were aiming for the whole time was that that sort of real, like truly an ordinary man, like truly like that's, you know, like that, like presented in that way. That's, you know, it's, it's you know, um, like I said, the third man earlier, the ignorant American is, you know, sort of obviously completely different setup, but, but that, that idea was something we kept aiming for because it, you know, I, I think to prefer this point, the relatability of it then is, is further enhanced. Yeah, absolutely. Um, folks check out Beckett. It's on Netflix right now. You can watch it. Um, can you guys talk about what's next? Do you know what's next for each of you? But, uh, yeah, I, I can just, I mean, I, without any specifics, I'm, bouncing around between about uh, four feature specs um, with at different di- different stages of development. There's like one thing I don't think has been announced yet that I don't think I'm supposed to talk about. So I'd say, but, yeah, I've, I've been, I've been happily busy. I'll put it that way. <laughs> and uh, Ferdy, I mean, this you're, you're, you've got two great movies now, right? You've knocked out two, you've done a bunch of shorts. What's next? I am balancing between sanity and insanity in writing <laughs> a new movie. <laughs> uh which uh I'm, I'm just deep in now and but but it is another sort of exploration of genre with a very strong character at its center great uh well i can't wait to see it um look forward to everything you guys are doing next thanks so much for chatting today thank you thank you I'm going to go around and ask you all to introduce yourselves on the microphones. Tell us some places where the listener may have seen your name uh, or your face on their television or movie screen. And Jamie, let's start with you. Hi, I'm Jamie Rosengard. I have written most of my TV episodes across all six seasons of Empire, but you've also seen my name on Dare Me, which aired on USA, and season two of Truth Be Told, which is coming out on Apple TV Plus next month. Great. Thank you. And Michael. Uh, my name is Michael D. Fuller. I am um, co-creator and executive producer of a show called Quarry that was on uh, Cinemax a few years ago. And uh, since then have worked on Lock and Key on Netflix uh, and on the Mosquito Coast for Apple TV. Terrific. Thank you. And David and Raphael, please introduce yourselves or each other, however you like to do it. <laughs> Uh, I'm David Diggs. I, uh, yeah, I'm a co-creator, EP writer on Blind Spotting. Uh, you might have seen me on some things 
the, uh, the <laughs> I'm I'm an actor in the other part of my life. So I I, I was uh, most people know me from a little known musical uh, <laughs> about a founding father, but I've been in some other shit too. You know, you just don't care about it. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> People love that that snowy train. Uh. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah! I, I just wrapped season three of of Snowpiercer. And Kimmy uh, Schmidt, you were terrific on Kimmy Schmidt. Oh, thank you. I, yeah, yeah, I did that. Kimmy Schmidt. I'd be on Good the TVs. Bird, I'd be on the TVs sometimes. Central Park. Hold on, let me do his job for him. <laughs> A number of amazing performances here. <laughs> Thank you, Raphael. And and Raphael, you're the co-creator of Blind Spotting uh, and the star of the uh, show and the the movie as well. Definitely not the star of the show. Uh, <laughs> uh, star. I believe my credit is and <laughs> and me. Uh, yeah, co-creator, writer, uh, showrunner, uh, and then uh, yeah, I'm in, the, I'm in the cast. And me and David made we the original to movie add together. Are the power slots in the credits? So I don't know. <laughs> it's true. Um, let's let's start with blind spotting and and all of the stuff that everyone is currently working on in as much as you can talk about it. Um, David and Raphael, let's talk about. So blind spotting began as this movie, which, um, from what I understand, you guys toiled on for years and years. Um, both the writing and and getting this made, um, that has been sort of well-tracked. Uh, I, I heard some interviews where you guys talk about that, and it's, it's great stories. But I want to talk about the translation to television and deciding how to tell this story in a new medium, how to tell this new story in a different medium. Um, and either of you who want to want to jump in on that, how did you start the conversation? Well, I mean, the reality is, is that we uh, hated the idea. Um, it was it was pitched to us by Lionsgate TV, who we'd never worked with. Um, we just knew that there was a division of Lionsgate that also did television. I don't think we were that attuned to you know, because they're not a, they're not a streamer or they're not a network. We don't, you know, we don't really so easily track what other projects they're doing. Um, and so they pitched this idea of blind spotting as a show. We were like, absolutely not. <laughs> like we're not IPing an indie movie <laughs> to a thing. Um, but of course, like, you know, our reps were pushy about it and Lionsgate was pushy about it. Like just take the meeting. And I think that the more we looked into it, I was like, oh, well they did they did Rami and they did, you know, they've done some great other shows with artists that I know and love and like speak highly of the process. So we were on our way to the meeting to tell them no. And I remember one of us just asked the other, like, is there any, is there a world where we would say yes to this? Like before we run in there and say no, and we sort of came up with our version. We're like, well, it'd have to be like full dance and music stuff, you know, going, there's, there's dance and verse going on the whole time. And it's not about us. It's about the Ashley character. And we get to introduce all these new people and we can make it really base centric. That would be the dream. Like if they were crazy enough to let us do that, then yes, then we would, we would do it. Um, and we walked into the room and pitched it as sort of our way to say no without saying no. Um, and then they said, great. <laughs> so uh, we were a little forced to take this more seriously. So we went away for a couple of weeks and came back. And, and I think over the course of that time, me and David really fell in love with the idea that we essentially could go back into the world of the movie without having to be responsible for just continuing the movie. Um, 
and that was really exciting to us um, that the the world building we would get to do. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, I, I imagine you had to ask yourselves, like, when it came to the movie, what is this really about? What story were we trying to tell? Um, because that seems like that's the basis and the jumping off point for the show. Yeah, I mean, I think the movie was such a... It's also really a movie about us learning how to write a movie. Um, and in a similar way, this TV show is the same thing. We hadn't done that before either. And so, um, but but we watch a lot of TV. And, uh, and, and, and I think there were, um, there were just things, there were things we knew that we wanted to see. You know, so it was about how do we make an effective container for these things and um, and then just ask for help as much as possible to to figure out how to how to actually make those exist in a format that we had never worked in before. But it um, but, yeah, I think getting to center the story on Jasmine's character was such a luxury um, once you get over the ego death that like the the network has no like had zero qualms about us not being in it. We're like it didn't it didn't phase oh, them at all. Uh, <laughs> but, but I think getting to center it on on Ashley um, and getting to write we do this anyway when we write we're always writing for people that we know um, and then and then you adapt it when the actor gets in there. But to have the actor also be the person that we know so well and to get to write for her particular desires and stuff is like a really good jumping off place I think because it it helps focus the ideas on like oh we know our friend would really like to do this on a tv show so let's make sure we write that in it, it um there was sort of a more condensed palette than I think we started the film with which was nice um and then yeah and, it makes sense yeah, yeah and we had we had a bunch of experience about like there was already a world we had built that was this kind of memory play of Oakland that existed in in our film and like so it's just about revisiting that world which it turns out that like a half hour show is pretty good at you know building a world and revisiting it often uh, yeah and it has I feel like given that half hour you have the luxury of not having to be so plot heavy as it might have been for a longer format. Um, you can sort of live with these characters, which is feels like what the movie did so well too. And is clearly what you guys are drawn to is these characters and their lives and the way they interact. Um, I want to pick up on the learning curve in a minute, um, but Jamie, you are, you are nodding all through this. Um, I want to talk about your, uh, you've developed a number of shows. You're, you're out pitching a show. Um, let's talk about how you find your way into the story you want to tell. I think that's still new to me. I came up, you know, a much more traditional path in TV. I started as a showrunner's assistant for Eileen Chaikin on this very small ABC medical drama called Black Box. 
And it was a show that didn't have a traditional TV studio. The creator had never worked in television before. And so it was really an all hands on deck situation where Eileen really brought me into the room with her every day, flew me to set in New York, let me sit with her in editing while she was there, which is how she learned editing, doing the same thing with Aaron Spelling. So felt like I was getting a pretty premium education. And as that show was coming to an end, she got the job running Empire, which at that point was just finishing up the pilot. It hadn't even been officially picked up by Fox yet. And so I went over with her as she started working on Empire. And so I ended up moving up the ranks that way. I ended up, I started as showrunner's assistant, left the show as a producer, having written, I think, 12 episodes and then, you know, have been on staff on Dare Me and then Truth Be Told. And now I'm a co-executive producer on this show with the fancy little mug, um, which is what happens when Reese Witherspoon turbocharges your project. Um, you get you get tchotchkes. Um, so for me, staffing has always been very comfortable and I'm kind of addicted to just knowing something is going to get made and that routine and that kind of instant gratification of that process and procedure and knowing what to expect. So it's only over the last two years that I've really branched out more into development. And I had a week before the pandemic started, I sold my first pilot to Freeform and I'm now hopefully working on something new. Um, but that's been the scariest part to me to go from, I think, having some semblance of a structure and others, other people's voices to doing that on my own um, and kind of finding, you know, learning how to not be quite so accommodating and learning how to, what are the boundaries of reasserting yourself and knowing when it's okay to say no to things, I think has been more of my struggle in a way. Well, let's let's dig in on that for a sec, because I think that's valuable stuff. Um, how have you learned? Uh, how have you figured <laughs> out? <laughs> come on. No, what has the process been like? It's different. I mean, I think it was six years that I spent on staff and I loved every single second of it. And I don't think there's anything better than just making things and kind of learning the trial and error that way. Um, but it is different when you have to just make everything in your own voice and really live in the ramifications of saying yes or saying no to something. And so I think a few ways that I've just grappled with it is learning, you know, when to say you don't know or when you need to think about something and not feeling like you have to give an instant response or responding out of anger or need to be conciliatory in the moment. Um, and just really knowing what, which things are the most important to your show and what really is the premise or the heart of the thing that makes you most excited that you cannot move away from. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Is that finding that heart of your show, um, does that come easily for you? I think that what's been most surprising to me is letting, is acknowledging that part of the beauty of TV is that it's living and breathing and therefore that premise may evolve in ways that surprise even you. Uh, the first show that I sold was about, it was kind of about alternative musicians in East Nashville who define themselves very much against kind of our mainstream conception of Nashville and country music. And we had, I had a very clear idea of exactly what I wanted to be it to be about these two best friends, one of whom fit our understanding of classic country music and another who 
had a much more authentic connection to it, but wasn't deemed that by the establishment. And, you know, it was so interesting. Like I had a really clear inciting incident. And then the weekend after we sold the show, there was a massive tornado that struck East Nashville and kind of upended just East Nashville, not any of downtown classic Nashville and really kind of reestablished the power dynamics there and who was affected. And like Trump didn't even come to speak to them, knowing that it was kind of this liberal bubble within a red state. And then compounded by what happened with COVID and how that affected live musicians and the ability to perform. And I just had to kind of be kind of just acknowledge that. Sure, I had my idea of how this was going to start and my characters could stay the same and their relationship to each other could stay the same. But it also would have been false not to acknowledge how the world had changed in, you know, even these couple of short weeks before since we had sold it to when we were actually writing and would be making it. Yeah, that's that's great. Um, and, and the show did the show not go? Oh, I mean, this is a whole other story. <laughs> crazy things. The uh, the show, which was pitched to me as a sure thing because it was the passion project of the president of the network and often that president of the network is no longer there. So just a reminder that yeah. tour <laughs> do not exist. <laughs> you have to just love them. Yep. Every time. Right. Every time. Um, Michael, let's let's pick up on, on the, a similar topic of sort of finding the show's voice. Um, you know, you're in development now on some projects. You've run a show uh, with Corey or you co-run a show. Um, let's talk about, you know, f- any of those and f- learning about what's important to the show versus sort of letting go of that ego or finding the, you know, finding what works in the development process. Yeah, no, I, I mean, that's, a, that's <clears throat> one of the, the trickiest propositions in, in doing any of this. And I think, um, you know, with Quarry, it was, there, there was, I had a, my writing partner at the time and I uh, had found the books. We had kind of been working on an original uh, idea that was in the same space, kind of a Southern period noir. And, uh, and we said, Hey, let's get our chocolate and this peanut butter. And we kind of had the, the notion of what, the you know what the as you're saying the heart of the show was like we we pitched it as uh non-confederate flag gritty dukes of hazard you know like it's like it's gonna be like what like the dark underbelly of the dukes of hazard and not just boss hog running around being you know uh latently racist and uh all those things but just the fun of like you know the fun of that but then kind of the darkness of it so whatever we did we kind of had that fixed prism of all right, this is what we put the characters through. This is what we put the story through. And it helps having uh, a series of books that we, you know, kind of adapted pretty liberally, but at the heart of it, it was about, that show was about a soldier coming home to with PTSD and not really being welcomed. So we kind of knew what the emotional um, dynamics were. And so we held on to that. And I think as with anything, and uh, and these guys all know on both ends of the, the camera and, and uh, all the process, <clears throat> there's what you when you're brainstorming and spitballing and and you know blue skying something okay that's great that's one uh version of the story then it's going to go through a process of you actually reading it and saying what the hell was half of this or uh or oh wow who came up? i think i came up with especially with the writing partner i think i came up with no okay with you but it's still great uh, but you know, just, just that kind of thing where it's, it's, you make new discoveries throughout every step of the process. And then <clears throat> that's just in the writing. And so I think it's like, 
All right, we always we always know, and I try to always know, like this was the thing that sparked me to it initially. If I can hold on to what that is, then it's only going to get better by opening it up, especially in TV, because it is so, you know, film is obviously collaborative as well, but TV much more so that it's like, okay, what's this person going to, you know, we had a director come on. He had his thoughts and his touchstones and his references that were things we had never even seen or heard of. That brings a whole new element to it. And so, you know, that kind of, that, that kernel of, of the spark of what initially uh, drew, drew me or to a project or to a story, um, try to hold on to as much as I can, but allowing for that to grow with um, the process, I think was the, has been the thing that, and it wasn't easy for me to learn that to your point and to what Jamie was, was saying, uh, especially on Corey, because so much of it, I mean, that was my first thing that I had created that was being made. It wasn't something I was staffed on. And there were things where I was, you know, it was like, it was, I look back and I'm like, this is the hill that I was willing, to, I was going to die on the hill of like the sofa and the, the protagonists, because it was like, this sofa is crazy and it looks, the pattern's terrible and whatever. And then having my, uh, our director who was great and understood exactly where we were coming from, was like, come look at the monitor, look at how it reads on camera. It's just a sofa. And it's like, it's just a sofa. That's what I always, anytime I get hung up on, like, is this is not, it's, it's like, nope, just, is this just a sofa or is this a thing? And it's, you know, most of the time. Especially it's during COVID, like yeah. you had to kind of let a lot of that go. I spent like two hours on set being, we were shooting at a Shiva, which is, you know, Jewish, you know, remembrance. And it just looked so wrong because it was outside because of COVID and we couldn't have the right amount of people there. And I was just like, we're all going to just accept this. I need to just let it go. This is my sofa. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it was, and it was exactly, it, this is my sofa. It was realizing too, it's like, man, I, I want to take the work seriously, but also it's like, people didn't like to work with Stanley Kubrick a lot. Not that I was, but it's like that attention to like the sofa. That's the way that he operated. And it's like, it's just, a, it's okay. The people watching it aren't going to say, I really, that scene was so close, but that sofa was just really fucking me up the whole time, you know? So, uh, so yeah, it's just kind of like that and keeping a hold of like, okay, this is where we're all coming from and this is what, and then, but also allowing for what that is to become something new and exciting, you know? We had to fight really hard for an actual sofa as well. Oh, and yeah, it, yeah. maybe, maybe also maybe the battle wasn't worth it in hindsight, but it's a really good, <laughs> yeah. it's a really good couch. Uh, I'm sitting here laughing, just going like, I'd have died on that hill. Almost did. It almost happened. (laughs) Bury me with this sofa. My my brain can't let go. (laughs) So has this, I mean, Raphael, you're you're running um, blind spotting, right? Like, so have you... Have you learned these lessons? Are you still dying for a sofa? Like... How how have you how's the learning curve been for you? Uh, well, first of all, like nobody really knows what the fuck a showrunner does. So, and and I've done it now for one season, and I still don't know. So I I feel like we're all, we're all trying to sort of figure out how our show works and how best to do that. I wouldn't say that I'm the one running the show. I would say that I'm the one most consistently running the show. I think like digs and jess and keith who were, were all you know the executive producers of the show and even though digs and i are credited as like the co-creators like there's there really is four of us i mean jess and keith are just as like if, if keith says he doesn't like something it means the same as if Diggs said he didn't like something like we have to consider it and talk about it but they're also they're also there's some other projects that they're doing and they're not they're not required to be there in the same capacity the amount of time that i'm there um and so in a lot of ways like my job is mostly to be the constant and like 
if Diggs has an opinion on something, make sure that he's aware of this other thing that maybe he wasn't in this meeting for. So it can inform his opinion the best. Um, but also like every showrunner that I talked to leading up to the show, couldn't give me a straight answer on what the job was. Um, or the way that they went about it was totally different and we have no union and we're not really paid directly as showrunners. Like it's not a real job. It's sort of like a, it's a focal point for blame and, <laughs> and for final and for final say for like, well, who's going to, who's going to pull the trigger today and move this thing forward. And so on our show, it's like, well, Keith gave his opinion and Jess gave her opinion and, uh, and, and Diggs gave his opinion. All right, well, we have to choose right now. So I'm going to say it's this you know, and be responsible for whether or not that was the right or the wrong choice. Um, and that's, I mean, that's, that's really the gig, but also we did our show during COVID, which is the first show that we've ever run. Diggs and I have acted on other shows, not during COVID, but running a show during COVID is just unprecedented. There's no, if a kid sneezes on our set, we have to blow air through the set for an hour and like clear everyone out. And that's in the middle of a scene of that. We're like, we, we had that happen in the middle of a scene. We were rewriting in the moment because characters start performing things differently than they were written. And that's a good thing. But like if Candace delivers a line with a different intention than it is intended, or Jalen makes a joke that is a different kind of joke than was intended on, on, on the page, we're in there. There's pictures of us in there, like flipping the page and being like, move this up to here. And then you say this, and then why don't you make, uh, what was that joke you said yesterday? Let's do that again. Let's do that here. And then that'll kick to her, you know, so I think the thrill for us as writers is like we come from we come from rap music, we come from theater, we come from studio sessions. So much of it is about like reactionary art and improvis improvisational art. And so when it starts, when we start jamming in the room with the with the with the cast and we start coming up with ideas, I think that's when Diggs and I feel particularly alive is the, the work is coming to life in the moment with the actors and we're, we're actually in concert with each other. I think those are the moments that like Diggs and I feel the most maestro about our shit. It's like, oh man, this the the cinematography is gelling with the director, is gelling with the script, is gelling with the actors, and now we're now we're getting into something. And that was really hard to achieve during COVID because we're like mask shield, stand six feet apart, you know. So the only time you get to really jam is when the cameras are rolling. Um, and so I think we were just trying to keep the cameras rolling as much as possible so we could do our jobs. <laughs> Tell me about your writing staff and, and how you worked with them. Uh, well, we went about our staff. So we, we were given a, a, a writer's room green light in um, January of not this past January, but the one prior. Um, and we were told like they were ready to make the show soon. We need to get these scripts done. And we had like a week to launch into the writer's room. And I think they assumed that David and I would write everything. But we have of our six protagonists, we have four of them are women. We have no business writing this art by ourselves. <laughs> no business. Um, but we are switching our IP. So we're obviously going to be heavily involved. And so um, David was in uh, Canada shooting um, Snowpiercer. Um, so he wasn't going to be able to be really around for the for the writer's room. So we were going to get back to one of our rituals, which is if one of us can't be there, we're like up in the middle of the night telling them what we changed during the day and shooting holes in an idea or whatever. Um, but they were sending us all these um, writing samples from writers that we didn't know. We were like, well, how in God's name, we don't know how to do this. How in God's name in four weeks are we going to crack a season with people that we don't know? And writing samples are so misleading. I can write a great writing sample. doesn't mean I'm going to be the right person for someone to work with. 
Um, and so we went with people that we knew. We hired um, Alana Brown, who I had just seen her first indie film. Uh, I met her at a friend's house in the Bay. She's a great writer and a great director. And I thought she was um, going to be fascinating to work with. She'd done this movie about the Rwandan genocide and four women living under a, a kitchen for 90 days, like trapped under there together. I was like, that's, you're a fascinating writer. Nigel Lumen, who had just done a movie called Chin, which she wrote and directed. Um, that's about the Bay, even though she shot it in LA. It's about growing up Muslim in the Bay. Um, and then Priscilla Garcia Jaquer, who's who this was her, she had been a writer's uh, writer, a showrunner's assistant. And I'd known her because of a web series she did about um, Latino identity. And we had been in sort of in concert conversation about the complexities of that for years. And so me and Diggs were just like, let's just hire them. And we'll hire Ben Turner, who was eventually going to play Earl, who's an amazing writer. And we went up to Canada for a week and we like sat in a big sort of hotel suite and talked it through. And David would come through at like 10 or 11 at night when he got off set and we'd talk it out. And then we'd go back in all day and do it again. And we did that. We went back to LA and did it for another three weeks. And we kind of came up with this Bible of this show. We thought we were definitely going to make just like it was written in the Bible. <laughs> and then two great, awful, terrible things happened. COVID hit and everything stopped and we got our budget. <laughs> <laughs> Which isn't, is like not possible to make the thing that we had made a Bible for on that budget. We also got people Um, to explain to us what the budget meant, uh, which turns out like things are way more expensive than you imagine they are. Uh. (laughs) (laughs) So we had no sense of like really that process at all. We went into the winter of the pandemic and all we could think to do was like, oh my God, everyone's out of the job. All of our writers are out of the job. Let's beg the network for additional scripts. I'm doing air quotes for everyone listening. And additional scripts are just like hire all of our writers to go off and write, a, a, you know, their first pass at a script, basically while we wait to see what happens with the pandemic. And we did that for the next six months. All of our writers got, you know, whatever the standard fee is for additional scripts. They went off, they wrote two drafts and we just killed time, you know, polishing these scripts and adding characters and totally changing the Bible and consolidating the story to make it fit into a significantly smaller budget that I think we understood we were getting, you know, and, uh, and, and then, you know, and then finally we, we randomly got the green light in the fall and it was like, yeah, the green light. So your 10 week starts like tomorrow, <laughs> start your, start your pre-production. And we only had maybe half, half the scripts, maybe, maybe we had five um, in really, really early stages. And so then it was like a mad dash to get it done, but we only had four weeks of actual writer's room. Um, and the rest was like people off writing by themselves. We didn't do 16 or eight or any of that. Um so again, we don't know what we're doing. <laughs> we, yeah. we're, but it's we nice. Is, it's nice to hear the rest of you guys talk about the sort of adaptability of it all, because like that is that did that did to me define so much of how the show came out, and I love so much of how the show came out. So I'm I'm glad that that's not like a fluke, you, you know. Well, and <laughs> you guys having you guys having that uh, improvisational, you know, background and ability too to be nimble in that in the moment like that is just. It's good on any level, but, you know, I think it, it, even especially with TV, especially dealing with, as you're saying, making a, a show during the damn once in a century pandemic, especially, you know, like, all right, you got to be, you got to pivot quickly, both on the page and uh, in the production itself. I mean, it must have disrupted everyone's writing process, right? Like we're, you know, just thank God we didn't have to do our writer's room on Zoom, but I think that's probably in our near future. You know, I can't even imagine what it's like to to have a I, dynamic I, with people on that. Did you do I mean, that? I, 
second Zoom yeah. room. Oh, yeah. What is that oh, yeah. like? <laughs> what is this the world? One, the one, so I was in one all last year. It was Lock and Key season three. And fortunately, that was a third season. So we all knew each other. You know, we all we were we had been in the room for at that point three years together. And so we knew each other's, you know, ticks and like patterns and, and just kind of like what who's good at what, whatever else. I cannot even fathom, and Jamie can probably speak to this going into i haven't had to do it yet into a new room with new people where you don't have that shorthand because that that is over zoom is just that is feels like death to me no part yeah i started the first week of april in 2020 on truth be told season two and there was aside from the show's creator and one writer i believe everyone on the staff was new and the show is kind of it's octavia spencer is the lead and she plays kind of like a um, like a serial type podcaster, but the case is completely brand new each season. So you're really starting from scratch, not just with a room, but it's a whole new world and case, brand new sets, brand new mystery, brand new everything. So we're all trying to get enough, get to know each other over Zoom, which we've all just started using like the, a week earlier, um, come up and it's a heavily serialized show. So I think that more than anything requires like meticulous boards and long arc tracking and all of those things that you would normally have in a physical space. So it was just really challenging even just figuring out the mechanics of who speaks when and how are we going to actually lead the room? What type of software are we going to use to track everything? All of those nitty gritty details that you really take for granted. It was just starting completely fresh. Um, And then I started in March on this show, The Last Thing He Told Me, and that's brand new as well, all new writers. Um, But fortunately, we have such an incredible book that it's based on um, with the same title. And the author of the book is also the creator and co-showrunner of the series. So that was very helpful that we had a Bible to constantly refer back to. But yeah, it's just, there's no way to just like naturally and spontaneously kind of build on things in the way that you would in person. Yeah. Um. (laughs) (laughs) it's hard it's really hard it's Um, also strange just not meeting people that you spend so much time with like I think I've still only met half of the truth be told writers because I was one of only two people on set and I'm just like what if someone's tall and I like I think they're short like it's a whole different energy I don't know what kind of shoes they wear it's a a context yeah, <laughs> it's a con- like yeah. you're trying to transfer sort of the emotional sensitivities and capacities of right. Like everything you just outlined is is also like largely like the logistical challenges alone, like just the logistics. And when we get into like, I'm trying to communicate. Like Alana just told us a story about her going from being hyper religious to like questioning her fundamental beliefs as an as an influence on this character's transition in episode four or five. How are we like taking the emotional weight of that through a screen and getting it on the board and holding it? Because when someone tells you that story in person, it 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 like rocks your body. You know, it's you can feel the sensitivity of the subject matter. And on here, like I could look at something on my desk and just like tune out for a second in such a different way and miss the emotional weight of the thing. I think that's what I get freaked out about is like, the in-person thing is how you recognize the the unspoken parts of those sharing moments as as the the actual humanity. Like someone tells a sensitive story, and I want to write their body language into the character 
when they tell it and I can't see it. You know, I can't feel it in the same way. And not just their body language, but the way it reverberates around everyone else. You, yeah. I think you can just read how well a pitch is landing based on how everyone else reacts to it or how they get uncomfortable or just trying to read into what's making that work. And you just can't do it the same way on Zoom, especially when everyone's making their like, I swear I'm listening faces. There is like a, there's like a, we're doing like a nostalgia prompt in a way that I think we've never had to do in television before. We're like, we're having to think back almost exclusively on the way that we connect with certain experiences because we can't do it in real time in the room and then transfer it to the story. Like every, everything we're doing is memory. We had to do this with the Bay because we couldn't shoot mostly in the Bay because they wouldn't give us permits. So like our show has to be an exercise in a certain level of nostalgia um, because we couldn't, we couldn't be on the ground and react to this space, except for, I think we had two weeks total, um, to actually be in the place where the show is set, you know, which is why so many of the writers are from there, but even they are sourcing <laughs> from memory because we couldn't do it there. I didn't realize that you guys didn't get to shoot there for any significant amount of time. Um, like you have to worry about capturing the feel of a place that's so important to the story. We were, if there was anything, if there was, if there was one sofa we were going to die on, it was that. And we just kept pushing for more and more of a time. But like, we actually had a, a, another like terrible, great, wonderful thing happen to us where we, so the houses, there was like no, everyone thought there was no way we could shoot all of the exteriors in the, in the, in the bay. Um, So we were going to find these houses in LA, we like did this massive search to find like a block that could feel like it was in West Oakland. It's, Vic- and it's we Victorian never architecture to be clear. Like it's a particular kind yeah. of architecture that we needed. But also that, and we're, you know, we spent, we grew up there. So there's so many things like the height of the, there's so many dead giveaways, right? The height of the telephone wires, the, uh, how, much disrepair the street is in how wide the street is in whether it's a double yellow line or not like all all of these things and we we found one we found two houses next to each other that were kind of close um and we were and we had sort of been working with our uh with our art department we were going to build you know houses that replicated this on our set and then do you know and then we're getting like pretty close to production uh we have we've already started building these houses and and one of the the owner of the main house got sick and was like unsure as to whether it was covid or not but was also totally uncomfortable with having people in their house and we lost the houses um and we were like oh well <laughs> since we lost them anyway maybe we should just go look for houses up in the bay then and sort of it was like our that design it was like, like that <laughs> night i was on google maps going through the yeah. streets of west oakland trying to find two houses that looked like looked the houses similar to the ones we had already started building, on building. <laughs> yeah. and and found these ones and i think before they could say no we were our whole leadership team was on a bus on the way to the bay to scout them we all saw this as like a big opportunity um, and then just basically shot the whole series in like, you know, 80% of the series in LA with these big holes in it, just with our fingers crossed that at the end we would get 
two weeks in the Bay, which, by the way, the network had only agreed to two days <laughs> at this point. Yeah, yeah. We were just we're sort like, of gambling that we were going to be able to convince them <laughs> to give us more. And we're like stealing money from other places, being like, hey, if we cut down on this, like, can you, doesn't that equal a day? Like, shouldn't we, we didn't use all of this budget. Like, that feels like a day. In so Oakland, we would just, probably. we would write it into the script as like something that you couldn't get out of. <laughs> like, we just like, and then, they cross into the 14th and Peralta intersection where there's a particular light they step under. You know, it's like it would cost so much more to recreate. Uh, so that we would get, you know, so that we would get more and more days and it paid off. Like, you know, it feels like a base show. Most people don't know that we, you know, and really two weeks sounds like a very small amount, but if you're shooting, I mean, you guys know as, as people who've made TV before, if you get, five or six days per episode and one of those days is on location you can get you can add a lot of texture you can get you know three exterior moments and a drone shot and a whatever and pepper it through an episode and it really does feel like everything outdoors is living in this place we Um, ran into a we ran into a, a similar thing uh on quarry which was set in memphis and it was very very it was like super important for us uh like I'm from the South and grew up going to Memphis, like this is a Memphis show. And we shot the pilot in and around Memphis. And then the networks set, said, HBO Cinemax said, that's great. We're going to pick it up, but you got to shoot it in New Orleans. But we, and we were like, okay, well, how do we do that? New Orleans is a very completely different place than Memphis. Do we move it to, we'll just, you know, I guess we could suck it up and move it to New Orleans, but we, that was a sofa to die on. And, and said, so no, and they actually said, no, 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 we love the Memphis of it all. We're going to give you two weeks in Memphis. But it's like then everything you're shooting in New Orleans is like fleur de lis are everywhere and like Mardi Gras stuff. And so you had to shoot all around. We were there during Mardi Gras, so I had to shoot around uh, so much of what that was. But but to your point, Raphael, we had two weeks there, and it was a it's a period show. It's set in the seventies, so it was like you know we had two weeks, but we knew exactly what. And Google Street being our our friend, we knew like all right, this is exactly the Columbus landmark we're getting. This is exactly the neighborhood we're gonna go do these exteriors and I, I, you know, and I'll talk to people now who are from Memphis and they're surprised that we shot it in New Orleans. And it's because we did, we, what we wove those, uh, you know, those Memphis landmarks. So it, and, and we really took, you know, as you guys having being from there and it being in your DNA, we tried to make every aspect of the show feel as though it had that in it. So no matter what we could have shot it out here and it wouldn't matter, you know, um, as long as we got it like amplifies every other touch point, you know, like then we just went crazy on the music and on the lingo and on the, you know, and on the, the super niche references that don't like the episode that just aired our episode six just aired. And we put this Shane company engagement ring commercial that played on the radio all throughout our childhood. Like, and we played it almost in full on the episode on the radio because people from there are going to be like, oh my God, you know, and it was all Twitter was doing the night it aired was just yeah. like, they put the shade Area Twitter the was like, shade company. <laughs> it was a stunt. You know, sure. <laughs> it's just something that anyone from the Bay can like cite the whole commercial because their entire marketing campaign is just radio spots. So they played like 30 times a day. <laughs> It's really heartening to hear that uh, from all of you that like you can get away with this. You can still give that great lived in feeling um, with, you know, the the short amount of time to shoot in the actual place um, and bolster these other things. I want to um, pick up on something we were talking about a minute ago, which is um, being in person. 
Uh, I met with an executive recently who was saying, I love Zoom. It's so great. Maybe we don't have to have pitches in the room anymore. Maybe we can do this all virtually. And yes, I would love to not drive to Santa Monica. Um, but let's talk about that. What is gained? What is lost? Uh, anyone who wants to jump in. With pitching I, specifically? Yeah, Jamie, you've yeah. been out there most recently. Yeah. No, I mean, I'm just about to start doing it. And I would say that I'm getting hammered in a lovely way because I adore my producers. Um, they're just really so worried about time and how short things need to be in order to maintain interest over Zoom. And I just, I think almost to the detriment of what you're pitching and just hoping that, you know, you can just get everything you've lost back out in the Q&A. But I think when you are in person, it's a little bit less rigid and you can just read, you can see what's landing in the moment and react a bit more and know where you should pull back or where you can really lean into it and expand a bit more. So sure, for generals or even project-specific meetings, I think you can make it work over Zoom and save your gas. But I think for pitches, it does seem like there is a lot lost, especially if you have the, if you're lucky enough to be in a position where multiple people want it. Um, I think you really want to know who is most excited in the room and who really viscerally had a strong response and which parts of the story they got the most and if they really intuitively understood it or if they were just excited by a premise or something like that. Yeah, that that's a uh, the time thing that Jamie speaks to. I, I pitched something uh, a couple of months ago that uh, I, I, it, were they're in the process of, of working out a deal for, which is great, but there's two things happening right now, which is at this moment in time, the market is very, because the whole ecosystem is extremely backlogged. So there's that. And then there is the, the zoom of it all. And there are upshots of it in that, like when I'm pitching, I can be a little bit more scripted, like, you know, than I necessarily would be, but and you kind of have to be because you're not, it's not as much of a conversation. It's much more of a show me dance for me, you know, and because I'm only going to be looking at this and you do have that window of, of compressed time. And, you can do cool visual slideshows, but to Jamie's point, and it goes back to what Raphael was saying with, you know, and, and being in the room and whatever else for in terms of the writer's room, there's just so much in terms of that energy that comes where you can tell if somebody's leaning in on something or, or if they're not, then you can reel them back in. Whereas with this, there's just, you're, you are uh, quite literally boxed in. And so that's the, the biggest challenge where I think, I think, yeah, generals, Amen. Let's let's zoom it up uh, for as long as we can. But I think pitches. I, I like being there in person because you then actually are having a conversation as opposed to, you know, here's my PowerPoint presentation. Open the floor to any questions. You know, and, and that can be great. There's people who can do it great, and you can succeed with that. But it is just, and it is. You also have like, you there's a ticking clock on that man because people will, and it's just human nature will just gloss over, and it becomes you know they start thinking about like. Lunch is coming up. Did I did I refill the car? Oh, I'm not going anywhere because it's COVID. You know, it's just people just check out. Yeah, we've tried to be more strategic about even. I hate talking, so I would like to do this anyway. But my the current show I'm working on is based on a real woman. And so we kind of trade off a bit. So I feel like whenever you're getting into a lull of potentially glazing over, I'm like, here's a new voice to listen yeah, to yeah. that will jolt you back out a yeah. bit or 
let the, you know, I've, we have an actress attached to him, like, please speak as much as you want, like whatever you want to ad lib, just like make people engage. Yeah. I feel like you're almost just coaxing people to really stick with you for the entire pitch in a way that you don't normally have to. It's an interesting point that you're making about like, it also just depends on what kind of person you are, you know, because like David and I are performers. We'll go into a room and just like finger gun it out. <laughs> like, <laughs> You know, and, and like, you know, because we, we like, lo- we love to perform something that we're excited about. And so we can ramble. We will ramble an hour easy. Like, I mean, take this podcast, for example. Every, like, we can, like, we'll just talk. But, I, you know, I, I do think we would have these conversations before the pandemic about like, oh, do you, do you send the script ahead of time? Do you send the deck ahead of time? Do you, do you do the pitch and then do you send it? And now more than ever, I, have, I, I am so certain. And I was this way before. I send everything ahead of time. I just don't even want to talk if you haven't read the shit. Because if we're, if you don't like it, we just won't do the meeting. And then I don't, none of us has to sit through anything shitty. And if you've read a treatment and or a treatment and a Bible and a script and you still want to meet, we don't have to talk about any of the shit that was in there. Like that's assumed that you've all like, you've. I can kind of represent it you know, but I don't have to like spend 40 minutes covering it again. And instead I can just talk about why this is a really great idea that we should do right now. I think at least, you know, obviously me and David have taken out a bunch of other stuff since then, but like when we took out blind spotting, the, the thing that was really exciting about it was like, we got to play a video of Ben Turner doing like a poem at this event in Miami and they'd all get excited about that. And then we'd like, you know, pull up pictures of Helen Hunt as rainy, which we didn't have her on board yet, but we were like, nah, but like we kick it with Helen. I think she might do it. You know, like sort of just be more um, emphatic about the show because I, for me, at least I'm starting to realize that like, if they're on board with the idea, the meeting is just like, not do you love the idea, but do we think you motherfuckers can pull it off? You know, I feel like it's, we're in there really just being like, do you, do you believe that we can champion the idea to completion? And I think now when I think about whether or not we want to be a part of anyone else's project, like what I look for in terms of my buy-in is, do I think you're going to run the ball? Or do I think you're going to leave this ball in my arms and I'm going to have to run it and I didn't sign up for that shit, you know? So like if, in terms of a show creator, like that would, if I'm trying to imagine if I was an exec, I'm like, do you have the juice to get it to the finish line? Are you that in love with it? Or is this just like another project for a paycheck? Because in the world of TV and content now, the shit that wins are the ones that have people at the head of them that really like, this is their life's work that they're working on right now. I am, um, as a, like I've become an EP on a number of projects now that I'm not writing and they're all in, like we're uh, we're pitching one this evening. But uh, it's... Uh, it feels like there's a lot more usefulness for the sort of EP people who are going to speak less in the pitch. Uh, it's you are benefited if if we do a lot more pre-selling the thing. We're like garnering, making sure the excitement in the fake room is more palpable. You know, doing all. If I know anybody who's on the team who's going to be listening to this, I need to make sure I call them and be like. Hey, just so you know, this is the only thing I care about. Like, it's my favorite shit. It's about, the, oh my God, it's so exciting. Your kids are going to love it, et cetera. It's like, you know, like a whole bunch of like wheel greasing that maybe was sort of less necessary. I mean, still necessary, but like in the, if you can 
if you're in a situation where you're in person and you can feel palpably the excitement, then it, it's different. But like you sort of need it for a, a Zoom pitch to be really successful. The ones I've been in that have been successful, it's like when everybody is performing their excitement. Right. Like when the audience has to perform their excitement, too, because they want you to know that they're actually excited about it. Like those are the those are the kind of the only times it goes well. And if anybody is like doesn't feel like they have to be on, then it just feels dead. Yeah. And I think you've just made the best case for partnering with a production company is like those people should be there to to hype the crowd. Right. They should do all that pre pitch work. Uh, Jamie, you're going to add something. No, I was just, it's so interesting. I feel like, especially at the beginning of the pandemic, I feel like there was even more emphasis than usual on some type of, not just a PowerPoint, but some type of like, and this doesn't have a pejorative association to me, but like a gimmick of some kind. So we, for example, when we were attaching an actress in a bigger production company, it's about the first female and youngest ever auctioneer at Christie's. So we opened our pitch with a fake auction because her whole thing is that she can sell anything to anyone. And she used to, as an icebreaker at like kind of stiff or awkward events, she would sell a free drink at like an open bar event, which she like has sold for like $5,000 just to get like wasps to loosen up. So we opened it with that. And I just feel like it kind of got everyone over Zoom to relax a little bit. But now I feel like the time has become the premium and there's a little bit less leeway. So it's an interesting thing to keep navigating, which is like, do you want to cut the pitch down and maybe take some essential details out, but give them more of the flavor with an actual experience or what is the most important way to go? And I think we're all still, or I am figuring it out. It feels like- I think we all are. Oh, no, I was just going to say, you're totally right. It feels like early pandemic, we were so excited about anything interesting that could be done on Zoom, right? I was watching like Zoom theater pieces and I was like, you know, this isn't so bad. It's pretty cool. And like at this point, I'm just like, I don't want to be here. I don't want to be here. And I don't care how cool the thing you're doing is. Like, I just would like to not be doing this anymore. So like, please... Please, no fireworks, no anything. I don't but need your AR, is like, your fucking, you know, like, I don't care. I don't want you to appear as a hologram in my house. Like, yeah. <laughs> Tone it down, just like, get, like, what's the, th- but I feel like if we can, if you can, like, sell people on the excitement of, like, look, if we just get through this part, we'll be on set soon and we'll, and we'll make it, you know. I do think sometimes the meetings get so stale, people forget that they make fucking TV for a living. Like they forget that like their job is fun and cool as shit. And they're like, you know, like we're in here like, and all right, so in the first, you know, in the first five pages you have blah, 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 blah. And the, you know, so our A storyline is this, you're like, yo, I understand that like this requires mechanics (laughs) um, in order to get it to the finish line. But like, we watch TV without any of that, you know, if my best, my, my best experiences of watching something are the moments when I'm completely unaware of structure. And I'm just on, I'm just on the ride with some artist's great story or some group of artists, great story. And then sometimes it feels like in those meetings, you need to I like at least enough of a reset to be like, let's remember what we do. <laughs> we make TV to entertain people. <laughs> That's the yeah. job. Um, yeah, we're not on you know, yeah, we're not all in like forensic accounting, which I'm sure is an exciting profession, but it's like, yeah, like, hey, you get to hear story people tell you stories they're excited about for a living and decide if they get to make them. So let's, yeah, for sure. <laughs> no shade to forensic accountants. No, forensic yeah, accountants. Don't, like, don't add us on that. That's a, hey, come on. Yeah. That one, now that the four of us will, will come for me. 
Yeah. Now we'll, the four of us will write a show about forensic accounting. Exactly. And it'll be, and it'll be like, that's our contribution to the field. Yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm glad you brought it up. Most of the audience for this show is forensic accountants. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Let's let's wrap up as we always do. I mean, Rafael, you set us up perfectly for uh, talking about stuff that moves us, uh, stuff that we love to watch, stuff that gets us excited or inspired. What are you watching on television lately? What are you? What is getting you going and sort of fueling you? Um, and Jamie, let's start with you on this one. I am completely obsessed with physical on Apple. And I listened to your podcast with Annie, who couldn't seem more delightfully different than that kind of acidic, toxic lead character. Um, But it's just, I really haven't seen anything like it before where you're contrasting the beauty of this location in Rose Byrne's like perfect face with someone who just is filled with such self-lacerating hatred at every turn. It's really just feels so bold and exciting to watch. So that is my favorite right now. Yeah, good one. Uh, Michael. Uh, I am thoroughly enjoying Sweet Tooth on Netflix. Um, I think it's uh, it's just uh, incredible. It's a, it's a terrific comic if anybody uh, is, is interested in that. And Jeff Lemire is just a, a brilliant creator. But the show actually did a trick where the comic's pretty dark and grim and took a story about a pandemic and about the, you know, a virus sweeping the world and, the, and turned it into this amazing, like, early Amblin Spielbergian adventure story where you never feel the it, it doesn't pull punches but you don't feel that you know weight of what we've lived through it feels like a a really cool way to, and it's just incredibly cast and just so inventive um and it's just a it's a fun watch that uh yeah it's just it's it's entertaining and engaging on all the levels for me yeah it's it's an incredibly sweet show which we don't yeah. get a ton of or haven't seen a ton of in the past few years and it's nice I, to see I feel like, but I feel like there's kind of a shift sorting to happen happening in general, where I feel like people are wanting kind of let they don't we don't want the the grim dark apocalypse, we want the sweet tooth apocalypse, we want you know Ted Lasso instead of what you know like whatever the inverted uh, the the dark version of that would be, and and you know I think it's the, the we don't want the wrestler, we want Ted Lasso, you know, and I think that's uh, uh, the wrestler is fantastic and I love it, but it's uh, you know it's just I think that that's kind of and it's nice to see that with uh, with the show. I think they pulled that off really well. Absolutely, yeah. David, what are you watching? Uh, this is so like square, but I, the the honestly the only thing I've been watching is Vera. Uh, I'm I'm a big detective show fan, and I hadn't ever watched that one, so I have I'm on season ten now, uh, but I've, I've uh, caught up with the entirety of of Vera. I'm obsessed with it. Uh, I. I uh, yeah, it's all it's all I can seem to watch at the end has, at the end of the day these days. Has this been a pandemic watch watching <laughs> digging into ten seasons of this? I, I wish I could say it had been, but no, this is sort of post pandemic. This is definitely like while I've been at work, like shooting Snowpiercer, <laughs> sure. like on breaks, going and watching Vera. Like I, uh, I, but this is what I do. I'm like a big like most of what I watch are BBC detective series. That's like my my favorite stuff out, and so and this one. Uh, I was shocked to find one that had been on for so long that I hadn't seen yet. And it, it really it really uh, clicks all the buttons for me, like way too many murders in a really small area, like wh- like um, a- incredible acting, even when the situations are silly. Like, you know, like I just um, I love these shows. I really do. I, Poirot is my favorite show of all time. So, like, I you know, it's it's in that 
Uh, it checks a lot of boxes. Have you watched Rosemary and Time? Absolutely. That was a <laughs> pandemic watch for me. Oh, I Rosemary and Time is. I mean, like, it blew my mind. The first episode of that blew my mind, and I could not stop until I finished the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. The like a a landscaper and a botanist team up to solve murders every week is so out there. That is so wild. <laughs> it shouldn't it's one work. One of those things, like, but it's it, so should, charming. it shouldn't work, but it does. And that's the Rafa says this all the time. That is the most powerful phrase in art. It shouldn't, but it does. Yeah. Uh, my my um, favorite phrase is it's actually really good. But I think when somebody <laughs> says, well, so I just yeah. feel like there's so much implied by it's actually really good. It's like you doubted it and it surpassed your expectation. It wasn't overhyped. You were ready to hate on it and you couldn't. It's so, <laughs> it's so powerful. Yeah. What has been that for you, uh, Raphael, in this past year or so? Uh, what have I, what have I been watching? I, I have like my two lanes, like I'm going back and watching like prestige shows that I never got around to. Like I'm just now watching Six Feet Under, which is blowing people's minds who like love Six Feet Under, but I had never seen it. And there's all this magical realism shit in it. And I'm like, oh man, this shit's way ahead of its time. Like we be doing this magical realism shit on our show, but they did this so long ago. You know, it's a, an, another great reminder that there are no new ideas, just like new ways that new ideas are presented, which I, I love, especially when like, I don't know if you guys have these moments in interviews, but like the, the interviewer would be like, we've never seen that your show does this. and We've never seen it before. It's so nice to be able to be like, no, that's not true. We have to stop doing that. This show did it. And this show did it. And this show did like, we are a patchwork of derivative art. Um, but then I watched Ted, the first episode of Ted Lasso. I was super fucking good um, of the new season. And then I just watched um, Zoe Lister Jones's uh, uh, indie film that she did during the pandemic, which is called How It Ends. Um, which like watching it, knowing it was like written, filmed and released all during the pandemic is wild. And it's like one of those really sort of small apocalypse movies where like everyone knows they're going to die at the end. And the girl she's walking around with is her younger self, but they just address it in the first two minutes. So like, well, clearly this is my younger self. And it's just like meta in the way that it approaches um, sort of an apocalyptic excavation of self. Uh, I like shit that's written for like, for the writer nerds, like they like they acknowledge the writers that are watching and who are gonna really love how nerdy of a flip on a convention it is. Uh, yeah, that's kind of where I'm at. <laughs> that's I never realized I I had a brand, but that's it. Um, <laughs> thank, thank you all so much for chatting. This has been lovely. Please come back and talk to us anytime. Forever Dog. This has been a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcasts.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram, at Forever Dog Team, and liking our page on Facebook.